Boy, do we have an exciting thing to do today. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're looking at, in first hour, we're looking at the believer's privileges individually as part of the church. In the second hour, we'll look at the uh, corporate effects of the work of Christ building the church, which paves the way for chapter 3 for next Sunday, the mystery doctrine of the church. And we said the outline of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, uh, some consider Paul's pinnacle of the revelation God gave him. I think it and Romans represent the greatest, most significant body of truth Paul gave us. I mean, I don't like to do comparisons of what the Holy Spirit's doing in different works or different persons, but it is so important to get this because people will say, well, Paul can't be talking about what you say he's talking about because no one else talks about this. No, this was given to Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, and this is a very important day in our study of the Christian life of Paul. And we said the outline works this way. In chapters one through three, you have the privileges, not a bad word, a God word, a good word from God, the privileges of the church. You know who doesn't have these privileges? Not the church. You know who does have these privileges? The church. There's two kinds of people, the church and not the church. That's it. The other stuff is uh, pagan thinking, pagan reasoning. But I'm from a different culture. I know, I know the church shows up in all cultures. And you know what it does? It critiques the word of God that's reposed in the church, critiques all the cultures. So the privileges. We are a body composed of individual members who are in Christ. Right there, I've lost new theologians. Oh, no, no, we're not individuals. We're only the body. We're only corporate. No, we're part, each one of us, as an individual member of the body, the one and the many. Position in Christ, that's an individual thing, is the basis for God's great blessings, which may be known and understood through God's revelation, which is what we've been studying in Ephesians and six Sundays. This is the third Sunday. The practice of the church is chapters four through six. So we've spent a lot more time lately in Ephesians on this. We have the, the privileges of the church and now the practice of the church. You know, it's a privilege to practice what God has told us. It's a privilege that God told us what he wants for us to do what he said. We don't think of it that way. We think, oh no, I've got work to do. If you would learn to have a work ethic that says, I want what God wants and what God wants is for me to do this particular work so that now I want the work that he has for me, you start to see the privilege that that is. I believe the rewards of the inheritance, the rewards of the successful believer at the judgment seat of Christ are greater work. I think they're greater responsibility. They're a stewardship that requires more effort, more energy, more capability, more know-how. And you will, be, you will have been training for that in this life. That's how I believe the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ for the church, not for the unbeliever, for the church works. The, the great white throne judgment is a different affair, but this is what we're talking, we're talking, this is a family conversation about the church. So the practice of the church, the church has a prescribed way of life. We have these things that are true because of our position in Christ, but there is a way of life that God said he wants us to live. How would I know this? I was telling you earlier about the, about the fundamentalist liberal debate. Liberal means don't believe the Bible is inspired so it can't be true. It's got some truths in it. Liberalism. Christian liberalism is not at its heart or in its most common expressions. It is at its heart this way. But what, what they'll say is, well, we believe in God. 
but we don't believe in the Bible. Now, Schleiermacher is the father of German liberalism, which has given rise to this thing in America. We're doing the postmortem. I mean, this is what happened. We're not going to fix it. This is what happened to uh, mainstream America, American Christendom. But liberalism is the denial of the scriptures and the insistence that your relationship with God is simply a matter of inner light. It's an inner experience. And what Schleiermacher, the German, was trying to do was preserve something of Christianity since he was embarrassed by the Bible. We have letters from him, uh, one letter from him to his father about how he couldn't believe in the incarnation of God the Son in Christ. So it is at its heart, it's godless. But, but that's not what the people proposing it or espousing it think they believe. They think they're having an inner light experience and then that's the center of the, the Christian faith. And that inner light experience explains con con contemporary Christian worship music. It does, it's where it's coming from. It's, com it's combining mainstream Christendom with mainstream pop music. And together we have the same style with a lot of inner feeling, a lot of inner light. And, and, the rea and, and I'm not saying it's all that way. I'm saying that's in my view where it comes from course, that crit criticism has been leveled at contemporary Christian worship since Lonnie Frisbee, since the 70s and 60s. And so what do you have today? You've got Bible scriptures set to rock music. We're like, nope, this is all straight Bible. And they're evangel. I'm just saying that's not the origin of the movement, but I'm glad for the Bible that's being sung on the, the Christian radio. It's just history. We're all part of a culture. Our culture has been bitten by the world. I'm trying to point out one way, but this is where the culture is irrelevant. The word of God tells us that we're the church and we have a prescribed way of life in which we grow and serve after the pattern of God, the son. And that we'll know from the scriptures. We don't know it from an inner experience of religiosity or feeling toward God. We know it from God's revelation, which then as we think it, gives us God's prescribed joy and peace and other related feelings. Even if we read the psalmist hating what God hates. You know, I'm in a rabbit hunting mood. Got like a 20, 22 full of, full of ammo and I just want to shoot, shoot all the rabbits. I want to chase all the rabbits. The emotions God gives you, the feelings that follow his thoughts, right? By your design, by God's design of you, as opposed to saying the center is how I feel and just feel a certain way so that I become God. That we'll let God be God. Let him tell us what he wants to tell us. We'll think it through and then he'll produce in us joy, the fruit of the spirit. What about this idea of hating, of hating? You know, everybody that says that they don't or that they're gonna fight hate, Watch the facial expressions of people that say that they're opposed to hate in popular culture. We've even turned um, a verb, hate, it had a perfectly good noun, hatred. We've turned the verb into a noun because we have just totally bastardized English. The word, the noun is hatred. Hate is a, na is a verb to hate someone, right? But no, we're just gonna use it as a noun because that's, that's the popular group think today. Group speak, all right, if you hate what God hates, are you opposed to God? Is that wrong? No. And if the person raging against what they perceive as bigotry or what they think is hatred, like saying sin is sin, if they say that they hate hatred, are they really 
innocent of hatred? No, they're hating. The point is that everybody's going to pick a side at some point, and they're going to line up against the other side. We all do it. The question is, does Jesus have a side, and are we on it? That's it. Whatever, however you define hate and hatred. And of course, I'm saying things that everyone here, if you're a Christian and you're walking with the Spirit, you know what I'm saying. You know this already. And if you're not, and it, it won't make any sense to you, and it'll be just gobbledygook. And so let's move on. We're saying that um, the church has a prescribed way of life. God has a way that he wants us to live in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. And this involves spiritual growth and service. As we grow and mature, we serve better and stronger and longer. After the pattern of God the Son, after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation, and this enables us to imitate our Heavenly Father according to the power we receive through the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian. And this is chapter 1. Uh, you had this introduction of the letter, and then you have the praise for God's blessings through Christ, and then the prayer for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And we had a great time working through that prayer. And now we're looking at our individual privilege as church-age believers. First hour, second hour, corporate privilege, and then next Sunday, the, the, the mystery which Paul was given the church and a prayer for God's fullness in the church. This is our outline of Ephesians chapter one. All right. You want to pick, up, um, pick it up in your Bible. We'll read from the New American Standard, and then we'll work through some details. As we survey Ephesians, we can't do a lot of the detail, but hey, that's great. It's good to get the summary. It's good to understand the flow, uh, because if we push all the details and chase what hatred is and all that, we won't follow the flow. So let's do that. Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 1, Paul says, <clears throat> and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. On, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Let me draw your attention to one key way to understand the flow of verses 1 through 10. In verse 7, it's the word, so that. It's the word, so that. It answers our theological question, why? And not why in terms of what about me made him pick me or any of that. It's not doing that in Ephesians. He says, why he's doing the things that he's doing to identify you with Jesus in his destiny, in his past, present, and future, to glorify you right now, positionally with Christ. The reason is because he has an eternal plan that glorifies him. The great for by grace 
are you saved through faith passage is basically all saying. I mean, that's an explanatory passage. Verses 8 through 10 explains this great theological point that God does it all because he's glorifying himself. And then he explains how grace and works are combined, how grace and works are related. How are we to understand grace versus works? It's God's work, God's grace, our faith, our blessing, which establishes us with the privilege of what? Work. Created in Christ unto good works. So let's talk about our lost estate in verses 1 through 3. He says, you, despite being dead, even though, although it's a concessive participle, although being dead in the past, in the transgressions and sins. I think the, the, the most important word that we gloss over here is the word in. In transgressions and sins. There's a position that's true for the unbeliever that's not true of the believer. It doesn't mean that you no longer sin. It doesn't mean that you no longer have a sin nature. It means that you're no longer identified with your sin. Your sin has been crucified on the cross in Christ, which is what he's driving to in the second half. You, despite being dead in the transgressions and sins, this is the position in sin, which is related to position in Adam, which is our old our old identity. You have a new identity. And that's what he's getting to. You believers in Ephesus, you believers in Preston, you, despite being dead in the transgressions and the sins in which you formerly walked, you used to walk in sin. So you were positionally in sin and then you walked in sin. See the two things, there's your identity and then your practice that goes with it. Christians, we have a new identity and we're called to new practices. And that's what he's pointing out is Think through your identity. Now, how do you get that? Not from whether you feel like sinning or not. That's not an answer. It doesn't tell you. Your feelings connected to your sinful nature. When we give reign to this, when we give free reign to our flesh and we submit our members as instruments of wickedness to sin, yeah, you feel like the wrong thing. We're not talking about your feelings. We're talking about your position and your practice. You, used to, you formerly walked in your sins and transgressions according to the age of this cosmos. And I believe cosmos means the satanically organized world system. It is an invisible order opposed to God, composed of personal beings and their marching orders, their organizational structure, their doctrines that they're communicating in ways the Bible doesn't describe. So you formerly walked in your sin, practicing your sin, according to Satan's plan satan's system according to the practice the prince of the power exousia power or authority of the air of the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience there's a lot to unpack in verse two but summarizing summar, summarily we'll say it is if you're walking in sin as your position and then in your practice then that's exactly where satan wants you that's his purpose that is the enemy's playbook. So this is a moment of, wait a second, all sin is Satan's playbook? All sin. We're all facing the tree all the time. We're all looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in terms of, do we choose God's way or not? And we're always looking back to the cross and saying, even though times I have chosen the wrong way, Jesus paid for that. But this, was, this is Satan's thing. And so when you want to think about loyalty and to whom I belong and how did I get here? All right. Uh, when you think about your sin, think about it in these terms. 
Walking in sin is the prince of the power of the air. It's his agenda. It's, it's the goal of his cosmos, his system of administration. <clears throat> we'll talk about the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience in just a moment, but let's finish the flow here. In which, in this spirit, in which also you all conducted yourselves before in the lusts of your flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. Whatever you felt like, whatever you thought that was in this fleshly mind, this is just what you did because this is who you were. Identity and practice together. See, the Christian walking in darkness is a real thing. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. The Christian walking as an unbeliever is positioned in Christ, walking as though belonging to Satan's cosmos. That's crazy. That's, that's an identity problem. That's a mistaken identity. Get a little bit of Christian, uh, Christian amnesia where we forget what God has told us. That's why we assemble. So we'll be reminded in part. And so we'll grow a little bit. We'll learn and then we'll reinforce what we've learned. You all conduct yourselves in, in the spirit of the world before in the lust of your flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. And we were children. I should have said we. I, should, I mistranslated we. Paul includes himself here. Not married to my notes, but the text really must reign supreme. Verse 3 says, In which the spirit of the, of the world we also all conducted ourselves before in the lusts of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind, and we were children of wrath by nature just as also the rest. So we, Paul, the apostle, the, the Jews, everybody is this. The gen, by the way, there's a, a we, and, we and, and y'all, there's a Jews and Gentiles thing in context he's going to get to. And he may be referring to the Gentiles or the Jews here by saying we. But before he's talking to, to the Gentiles, you. And that might be the right way to think about this. It definitely develops through the rest of the chapter. So we were all in this lost estate. And it is a personal betrayal of the creator because there's an enemy there's a war on and we're working for the wrong side that's very important to get in verse two let's talk about the prince of the power of the air i have run across six possible interpretations of this um, the spirit which is working in the sons of disobedience but i want us I, I think there are three likely possibilities of of the grammar and i think they really all point to basically one interpretation so let me show you what I mean. Three options for verse two. And here's the first option in terms of the grammar. He says, in which you formerly walked in the sins, you formerly walked in according to the age of this cosmos. That's all good. Age of this cosmos. Age is a time period. Cosmos is Satan's administration. There's a period of time beginning in apparently Genesis three, when Satan is administering a system over, cos over this world. It's even synonymous with the world. So it's called cosmos. That's the age of the, it's not the dispensations, it's the time period, the period or the ion of Satan's administration, right? That's what he's talking about. You formerly walked according to the age of this cosmos. Wait, there's one thing I want to tell you. Satan is called Archon, Prince, the ruler of this world or of the demons eight times in the New Testament. A believer that I'm very good friends with recently told me that a church they went to that, that said Satan is not the ruler of this world. Jesus is the ruler of this world. Well, that's just ignorance. It's ignorance because 
the concept of world is very complicated. This is my father's world. He made it. Jesus Christ is uh, above all for rule and authority. And yet Jesus says in Matthew, I'm sorry, in John 12, 31, the ruler of this world is judged. In John 14, 30, the ruler of this world is coming and he has no part with me. He's talking about Judas is coming with Satan possessing him. Very clearly in John 12, 31, 14, 30, 16, 11, here in Ephesians 6, 2, Matthew 9, 34, 12, 24, Mark 3, 22, and Luke eleven fifteen, Satan is a prince and he's ruling a cosmos. And it doesn't mean the physical planet. It means the dominion over the persons of this planet that have been deceived. And God owns it. And yet he's permitting Satan this time of rebellion. And where did this take place? Well, if we take these verses and say, okay, this is how it is. And we watch the Bible and say, where did this start? It's when God, having declared man, his vicegerent, his subordinate ruler with God there, when, God, when man gave that to Satan and said, I'll submit to the serpent instead of obeying God, apparently that was the point where man lost his dominion and Satan gained it. Apparently. That's not hopefully too controversial, but notice how we started. Jesus says he's the ruler of this cosmos. We say, how'd he get there? Apparently Genesis 3. This is the lost estate. See, I thought it was about being a bad person. I thought we were just being bad. Don't you want to be good? Kindergarten Christianity, be nice to each other and share. Let's all share our toys. You eat other people's lunch without asking? Stop it! That's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, kindergarten cop. Just do good. Just be a good person. Do what you're supposed to do and everything will work out just fine. No, it's not about just that we're sinners. It's not just, it's certainly not about social structures that have been arranged. There is a structure. There is an organized system that has to be torn down as the one recent agitator told a, a news comment, a news in, in, in interviewer. Uh, if we don't get what we want, we're going to burn this system down. You heard that in the news? Okay. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, it's uh, a lot of possible meanings of that. You can take it literally if you want. I will. I'll choose to take that literally. You're going to burn this. Hey, there's a system that will burn, but it's the cosmos. It's Satan's system. And the problem with us is not economic structures or political situations or monarchy or oligarchy or plutocracy or these kinds of things. Our problem is that there is a prince of the power of the air and he's got a system and we're sinners by birth in Adam. And so we are born in slavery to this situation. And that's the scripture. Now, I don't feel that way. Unbelievers don't think they're being deceived by the deceiver of the nations, but they are. That's what the scriptures say. And if you are deceived and you don't know it and someone says, hey, you're deceived. Are you gaslighting me? I don't think I'm deceived. How would I know? Well, it'd be God's revelation. And that's how we know. That's how we know. All right. The prince of the power of the air. In which you formerly walked according to the age of this cosmos system, according to the prince of the power of the air. So according to means by the standard of, according to the standard of, the ethics of this cosmos. Okay? So you walked according to the system Satan is administering. And I know that because of the next thing, according to the prince of the power of the air, so far no problems. But then he says, of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. What you have to do in Greek 
if you're going to be diligent, not in English. English, you can do whatever you want because it's not written in English. But in Greek, you have to account for the of the spirit. It's, a, it's called a genitive. And it, genitive modifies, almost always modifies something else. It's a describing word. We always have the word of in front of genitive in our New American Standard, of, of the spirit. You have to account for this genitive. Now, the last genitive we had was of the power of the air. And the next genitive is of the spirit. And you have to see where does this connect. And I never saw this before reading it. I always read through like I do with Paul. And I'm like, oh, there's probably something going on there. When I worked through it as a diagram, when I diagrammed it, it wasn't until I had to account for every genitive and every noun and adjective and how are they related grammatically in Paul's thought that I realized you have a hanging genitive construction and we have to account for it of the spirit. What is of the spirit connect to? And this is my interpretation, the prince of the spirit, because I think he's stringing together genitives. According to the prince, that's the, um, that's the accusative of archon of the power of the air of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. I think, and I don't know if I'm alone, but I think Penuma's spirit is modifying prince which means you would translate it according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the prince of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Which means the spirit isn't a personal being. The prince is the personal being. Prince is Satan and his fallen angels following him. The spirit would be not personal. And that's really where the arguments on interpretation, the six views are what is the spirit referring to? My three views are what is the genitive modifying? And that's how I live. As I say, what does the text say? How do, I, how do I adjust my theology accordingly? That's how we're supposed to do it, I think. That's my method. So spirit belongs to or is from the prince. The spirit is something that is of the prince. That's my take on the grammar. There's another way that's possible, that's viable, that's an option. In which you formerly walked according to the age of this cosmos system, according to the prince of the power of the air, which air is the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience? That would be called a genitive of apposition, and it is modifying air. Power, do you see the of, of the air? It's in the genitive. So this could be another genitive of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, modifying air, which makes the spirit, he's talking about the air that Satan is ruling. So it doesn't mean it's the actual physical air we're breathing, you know, some combination of very dangerous uh, greenhouse gases. <sighs> right. And, and other things, oxygen, hydrogen, carbon. It's, it's not that's not the physical air he's talking about this invisible system, which is the spirit. And that would be an interesting. I th I'm, this is my second favorite take because spirit and air are synonyms in Greek. And so you could have a genitive apposition. In this case, spirit is the air. And I believe that would mean that it's not a personal being. In other words, Satan is not in the unbelievers. People read this and they've got Satan inside unbeliever. No, Satan possesses some. I think he can do one at a time. And that's what we see in the Bible. One of his main things we see Satan doing from Genesis three on is he possesses earthly creatures. Serpent in Genesis three. Uh, king of Persia or King of Babylon, King of um, Prince of, um, of uh, Tyre. The, the, these are Satan possessions, Judas and, and John. The spirit as the heir is still an impersonal thing. And again, I would say it means the worldview, the spirit of the time. And option three for the grammar in which you formerly walked according to the age of this cosmos, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
which power. Now you have power, another genitive, that's being modified by of the spirit. So which power is the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience? Again, it's not personal. It's just saying that the power is this spirit. I would, I think all these things are actually true. I'm not sure that Paul is saying these second two. I think he's just saying that the, that Satan rules the air and he is therefore ruling the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. And this is what, I, this is what happens. Without God, without Christ, without the spirit of God in you, you are by birth at odds with God, at enmity with him, we'll read in this chapter. And there is an attitude of rebelliousness that goes along with your sin nature. It's actually a product of it that says, not thy will, but my will be done. And that spirit, that attitude of have mine own way self, I believe is administered, is somehow ruled, is under the dominion of Satan. It doesn't mean Satan lives in these people. It means that he is the power. He's the authority that is calling the shots. And so we've been transferred in first Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians 1:13, from the domain of darkness, this, this domination to the kingdom of God's beloved son. See that there, there's been a freeing from this dominion. And I think that no matter what you do, spirit is not personal being. The spirit is this influence that Satan exerts that characterizes all the alternative worldviews. Do you know that word worldview? It's a great word. I was first introduced to it, I think in 2005 or six. Sounded like a new thing, a new educational paradigm. They're gonna teach us a new construct and this made up stuff like education courses do. It turned out, no, no. Do you know why the way you think will never intersect the way the person next to you thinks that we just can't get there? No matter what we do, we're always opposed. We never end up with the same conclusions about ethics, about politics, about economics. Why do they think this way? It's worldview. It's from where you're coming from, the perspective that you're approaching life with. If you assume no God and that all there is is matter, that'll be radically different in how you conclude politics and ethics than if you believe there is a creator. See, all the things that seem to be intersecting, killing of the unborn, killing of, um, not killing of murderers. See, like we'll kill babies, but we won't kill murderers of actual, um, uh, actual murderers. How do these things intersect? Man is basically good. He isn't fallen and broken. The problem with man is the evil structures. All these things in the Marxist worldview, they all derive from the same prior conviction and that there's no God and all there is is matter, as I've said a lot. And, and so I think this idea of spirit is really important. Whether it's Islam or any other alternative to God's truth in Christ, there is a rebellion that's taking place and it basically has to do with what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the resurrected son of God? And if you, if you get that one wrong, then you end up with this consistency with the world, the spirit, that's the authority of the air. You know, after the rapture of the church, which may be soon, nobody knows. We know that the stage may well be being set for a global government 
to come uh, and take over after the ashes of a major economic world economic collapse. I think these are the necessary stage setters for the Antichrist rule. You know, when that happens, the Bible says that peoples of all these lands that today are so different in their worldview are all going to follow this same leader. They're going to worship him as a God. How, how can you have that happen where everybody says, yes, we now have Messiah, the Antichrist, the replacement. How can the Jews say, there he is, we found Messiah. How can Islam say, yes, we'll worship God. How can all these things come together and say the same thing? It's because it's all the same thing. It's all the rejection of Jesus. I believe, I think that's really the issue. It really comes down to what do you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? He's more important than any of us really think because we can't think enough about how important he is. Nevertheless, this is the problem of Satan's dominion. It is that he is the spirit. He is the power, the prince of the power of the air of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. But God, in contrast to us, but God being rich in mercy through his great love with which he loved us, this is his motivation for everything it's gonna say in verses four through seven, but God, because of his rich mercy, and his great love and us, although being dead in transgressions, he made alive together with Christ. And it should be even us. God is different from us because he's rich in mercy and loving kindness. That's Old Testament language. The God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness with his rich mercy, with his love with which he loved us, he, even though we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are having been saved. That's the perfect paraphrastic construction of for by grace are you saved. It's you are having been saved. And us, he raised together and he seated together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not good English, but I want you to see what it's saying. He keeps fronting the difference between God in the front of the sentence, God and us and us. God and us, the difference is striking. And this is what he's building to in the explanation of grace and works. It's what God did to save us, not what we do to save ourselves. And so we taught the children to memorize Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. These are my life verses. Before I could even read the Bible with any understanding, I had this memorized and inculcated, and I praise God for that. Because it is the explanation for what's happening here. God is rich in mercy. We are dead in transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He raised us together and seated us together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So that, and here's what we started with. The reason he did it is so that he would demonstrate, not that he might, not that he could. The subjunctive mood is communicating purpose. That's simple. The reason he did the things that saved you, that have you alive in Christ, you're not just not going to hell, people. The most important human being who ever lived is also God the Son, and you are in him, and you share his glory right now. He raised us together and seated him together, seated us together in the heavenlies in Christ, so that God would demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Any system that denies the love of God 
is missing some important exegetical cues in Ephesians 2. Any system that has God as arbitrary is missing the exegesis of God demonstrating his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the systematic fill in the blanks that, well, well, who did Jesus actually, who did he pay for their sins? Well, it can't be everyone, even though 1 John 2 says it was everyone. All the little theological summary is nothing compared to the actual words of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And that's why I have chosen to do exegesis. Notice the full room. Christians will not sit for actual exegesis. I did exegesis. I exegeted the scriptures for seven, eight years. I had a, a beloved uh, Christian believer who'd listened to word by word atomistic teaching all his life. He asked me why I didn't do exegesis. Do you know what he thought it meant? He thought it meant that the pastor on the overhead writes the Greek word and tells you what it means and writes a doctrine up on that word's meaning. And then he eventually, maybe three lessons later, gets to the next word and he writes up a doctrine on that meaning. And eventually we'll string this together into uh, something that could not be understood from reading the passage. What that is not is exegesis. That is just eisegesis. That is just bringing your ideas into the text where the author isn't even in control of what he means anymore. You can't do exegesis without a paragraph, without, a, without, without at least a sentence. You can't bring out the meaning of a sentence unless you have it together. Like if I come up to you and say, have you? Couldn't you come up with some awesome theology? You're creative people. Let's brainstorm what I might mean by have you, given the possibilities in English and what you know of me. Have you? Have you? Aren't you glad that I'm not in charge of pretty much anything? Have you? Have you? Have you been to Jesus for that cleansing flood? Have you any great poupon? Have you? Have you heard this song? Have you got change for a dollar? Have you got a pocket knife? I got some gum on my shoe. See, the meaning of the words only exists in the author's thinking as he shows you the whole thing. So that's why this is exegesis. Now, here's what we're doing. We have God in verse four being rich in mercy through his great love with which he loved us, doing all these things for us. And the reason, what's the reason, Sam? What's the reason? So that he would demonstrate in coming ages, the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. This is Romans 5.8. And then the great explanation. Thanks for your patience. For by grace, for by grace, you are having been saved through faith. Perfect paraphrastic instruction, meaning it's ongoing. You're experiencing it now, but it's completed action in the past with ongoing and in our case, eternal results. That's the best I can do with a perfect paraphrastic. And that salvation by grace through faith, is not from yourselves, from the source of God is the gift. Of God means from his, he is the source of this gift. You didn't do it, it's not from you. It is not from works with the result that no one may boast. And that's important, the Hena plus subjunctive, not boast, is this is the inevitable result of God giving it as a gift. Now, what's the that? The that, that not of yourselves. It is not faith. It is not salvation. It is not grace. This 
pronoun refers back to the previous clause. Salvation by grace through faith. God's design of how people come to him is John 14, 6. Salvation by grace through faith. It is God's grace and our ability by God's grace to trust him is a mystery. But nowhere in this passage does it say God believes for you. It, it, absolutely, you believe. And the way you access God's grace and therefore his salvation is by faith. It's through faith. For by grace are you having been saved through faith and that not from yourselves, from the source of God is the gift. It is not from works with the result that no one may boast. There's no man in this. It's no one. Generic. No one, we would translate. For we are his poema, his workmanship. Having been in the past, prior, created in Christ Jesus. If you have Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a new, you're a new creature in Christ, katizo, to create. Stock language for creation. Poema, the created thing, katizo, to create. So we're his workmanship or his created thing, created in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about everybody who's made in God's image. He's talking about those who are born again in Christ. Created in Christ Jesus, epi, for the purpose of, and that's a long workaround, but it means for the purpose of good works. He, he created you in Christ, not by you doing good works, but so that you would be equipped to do good works. And if you don't do the works, then you're not fulfilling the purpose and design for which he made you new in Christ. So this is the difference. It's not that Christians don't work. It's that we didn't work to become Christians. It's that because we're Christians, we work. We're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared be beforehand. Which just means he set the works up. The works are what God prepared beforehand. And the purpose of that preparation, the reason he set them up beforehand, is so that in these we would walk. That what will I do now is the New Testament. This is why the gospel according to Jesus, in my opinion, misses it so badly. It's MacArthur's ideas. It misses it so badly. Here's what happens. What the New Testament is generally addressing is Christians responsible to work. That is not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That is you who have believed have work to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's explicit here. I had a list of 37 observations I made of these three little verses. And I will spare you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the works that you prepared for us in advance, that we would, we would walk in them, recognize these are grace works. They're things that you've set us up to do. It's like you're, um, you're training us every step of the way. You have these works for us to walk in so that we'll trust you, that we'll learn what you want us to learn from it. And we'll be able to see the riches of your grace and the wonders of your power. Father, show us your power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.